chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus uh, this morning. And uh, before we turn to God's Word, let me just uh, make one comment. Uh, today is, as Daniel mentioned, the 500th, or well, it's not today, I guess this week, is the 500th anniversary of, uh, of the Reformation and uh, Martin Luther you know, nailing the 95 theses on the uh, church door in Wittenberg. And um, you might, if you, if the, I should say that the, the Reformation is an important part of our uh, church's theology and who we are as a church. Uh, you know, we're, we're a Reformed church. Much of our theology comes from Martin Luther and from uh, uh, John Calvin later in the Reformation. And so uh, if you're particularly a history person, you might be disappointed to hear that I'm not doing a Martin Luther sermon this morning. And um, I apologize for that. I have two reasons, one lame reason and one good reason. Um, the first reason is that I'm really hoping to get through Exodus 18 by Easter. And in order to do that, I need to continue it with Exodus this morning, so we're going to continue with Exodus. But the other reason, which I think is a better reason, is that the Reformation was really about Christians saying that the Word of God, the Bible, is the supreme authority above any of the church's tradition that has been passed down. Of course, Reformation Day is about the church's tradition, but the big thing that the Reformation was saying is that what Christians need, what we need to hear in worship on Sunday morning is to be taught from God's Word. And of course, that's why in our church, we just go right through books of the Bible every week. We just take whatever the next passage is in the book that we're studying, and we look at it in detail, and we apply it to our lives. That is a lesson that we learned from the Reformation. And so we're going to honor the Reformation this morning by continuing to study God's Word together. So, Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Let's look at God's word together. Moses went back to Jethro's father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they 
heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, So comforting, so challenging, and often strange as this passage is for us this morning. We pray that you would teach us. We humble ourselves before you. We long to hear from you, but we open our hearts to you as well. Um, Please give us ears to hear. Give us teachable spirits. And uh, we love you, and it's because we love you that we uh, give our attention now to your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. So we are looking this morning at uh, one of the few places in the Bible that mentions Moses' wife, Zipporah. And it's probably one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible. It's been interpreted all different kinds of ways. Maybe you caught that strange part uh, uh, there as I was reading it. Um, But it gives a small glimpse into who Zipporah was and what it looked like to be married to someone like Moses. And so this week we're going to talk about the art of being a wife. And then actually in two weeks, we're going to have another sermon about what it means to be a husband. Actually, there's another passage in Exodus that lends itself to that. So we're going to, we'll get both sides of the story here. And I know for some of you, you know, if you hear about sermons about biblical marriage, that might you know, be like nails on the chalkboard for you because you think it always is tilting towards the man. It's always, you know, he's in charge and he's the boss and he gets to do what he wants. It's not the case. Um, the Bible says two interesting things to men and to women in marriage. Uh, most of you probably know there's famous passages in the Bible that talk about wives submitting to their husbands. Um, but also it says that the husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid him, gave his life for her. Or as the way that Jesus put it, he says that Jesus, Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so you have submission and service. Both the husband and the wife are called to make themselves lower than the other, but in different ways. Both the husband and the wife make themselves lower than the other, but in different ways. That's what the gospel says about marriage. And so for these next couple weeks, we're going to look at what it means to have a marriage that's shaped by the gospel. And today, we'll look first at the art of being a wife. And the reason that I say the art of being a wife is because we're going to look at this passage under two headings that may seem contradictory to you. This is what the two headings are. That first, a wife follows her husband in his calling. Wife follows her husband. But second, we see in this passage, a wife subverts her husband in his foolishness. Two things. Follows her husband in his calling and subverts her husband in his foolishness. And I think as we look at this passage, we'll see that this is a complex and beautiful arrangement. I'm probably not going to give this sermon perfectly, so I'm going to ask for your your patience, and we'll do the best we can. It's a challenging topic. So here we go. Two points this morning about being a wife, and I know some of you say, well, that's a lot of nerve. You're the male pastor giving a sermon about being a wife. Well, I, you know, we got to talk about all of life here, so I'm going to do the best I can. Okay, so first point. A wife follows her husband in his calling. 
And this passage that we just read is, comes right after the famous scene where Moses meets uh, God in the burning bush. You know, he comes across a burning bush and God talks to him out of the bush and says, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you're going to rescue my people out of slavery. And then it says here in verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses has a calling to go to Egypt and Zipporah, his wife, is following him there. She's leaving her family. She's leaving her community where she's grown up. It's a tremendous amount of risk here. It's the security of her family she's leaving. And I think it's remarkable to think about what Moses is being called to do. And look, it's, it's repeated for us here in verse 21 about what Moses has to do. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So here's poor Zipporah. She's hearing the plan. And she's like, okay, take me through this one more time. So we're going to go to the world power. And we're going to tell him to let all his labor force go free. And we already know that he's going to say no. And so we're going to threaten him by saying God's going to kill your oldest son. That's, well, I wouldn't have come up with that plan, but all right, I guess that's what we're doing. It's amazing. She goes with him to the calling. She does it. She says, I'm going to go with you. It's a profound indication of her faith in God that she goes. And it is a great gift for a wife to say to her husband with her words, with her actions, with her risking, I believe in you. It's a powerful thing to be sent out into the world with someone saying, I'm behind you. I'm going to get behind you. I'm going to go with you. You're not going to be alone in this. And I'm with you in it. That is a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. I think it's a major part of the art of being a wife is to say in the midst of uncertainty, the midst of risk, in the midst of maybe moving away from your family, moving away from security, to say, I will follow you. Beautiful thing. Now imagine, though, that for many of you, when you hear about that, oh, a wife should follow a husband in his calling, you may have some objections to that. And I want to go through a few, three objections. Okay? First objection, well, what if I don't believe in him? Okay? I know I'm supposed to believe in him. What if I don't believe in him? And I think the first answer to that is that the Bible commands all of us to give to people things that they don't deserve. So, you know, when the Bible says for a wife to respect her husband, you don't give the husband respect because he deserves it. You give it because God has commanded it, because God deserves it. God deserves our obedience, and we trust him. And why is that? It's because that's the principle of the gospel. The gospel says that God treats you and me not based on how we are now, but based on who we will become. God has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus, and he loves us and cherishes us. I would even say God respects us. I mean, he listens to our prayers. 
there is a certain respect that God shows to us, not because of our righteousness, because of Jesus' righteousness, and it's based on who we will become. And by treating us that way, he is encouraging us to become who he envisions that we will be in Christ. I think it's the same thing with wife. God is making your husband into someone. Don't treat him based on who he is now. Treat him on who you see the gospel transforming him into. And you treat him that way based on who he is in Christ. And you say, I believe in you. And I'm behind you because of what God is going to do. And so I think that's the answer to the first, first objection, is that we treat one another and regard one another, not based on who we are, but who we are in the gospel. Second objection. What if I think that that is not where God is calling him or our family? How do I follow you in calling where I, th- I don't even think God's calling us there? Um, well, I think the first answer to that, you know, this is something I've heard Shannon say, and I talked to Shannon about this sermon, so she's going to come out a few points along the way. And she said, you know, the starting point of a discussion about whether God is calling a family or a husband somewhere, a man, to do something, is a wife has to first think about the posture of her heart. And there can be a tendency to say, you know, my first posture is to be cynical or to be distrusting or to be critical. And whenever he comes up with an idea, I figure out what's wrong with it. And, and that's the first place to start is that, that respect and say I'm going to follow my husband is a, is a pattern of the heart and a training of the heart and a preparing a heart for a conversation. But I do think it is a conversation. And the conversation is most successful when there is a pattern of saying, maybe in smaller ways or in bigger ways, I believe in you, I'm behind you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to respect you, I'm going to get behind what you're doing. So I'll I'll give you an example of this. When uh, I went to seminary, when I decided to be a pastor, I had already been in college for seven years at that point. And um, I I had done a master's in math. I was planning to be a math professor. We were living in Bellevue, about half a mile from Shannon's parents. We had two kids. And, you know, I'm sure Shannon's probably thinking, you know, it's probably about time to have a job and not be in school anymore. And then I come home one day and I'm like, I'm supposed to start a church. And that means I'm going to have to go to school for three more years across the country. We're going to have to move away from your parents and then go to school for three years and then start from scratch at church. And remarkably, Shannon said, I'm with you. I believe you. I'm with you. I believe God can do something. And that's what a tremendous gift. And at many points along the way. Fast forward 10 years. This is a couple years ago. And I came up with another great idea where I said, you know, I have all this spare time in my life. I'm thinking maybe I should do a PhD. I'd like to do a PhD while I'm being a pastor. And she says that gives her permission at that point to be able to say, listen, I've been behind you on a lot of these ideas. I get behind you. This is a bad one. And I can know in that place that that is not selfishness because she loves me. It's because she loves this church. She loves our community. She loves our kids and our family. And to say, listen, you're going to get a lot of opposition from me on this. There's going to be a lot of challenge and debate. There was place for that. There's place for a debate. But it helps when there's this context and a pattern of her saying, I want to be behind you. I want to believe in you. And, of course, as a husband, you might ask the question, well, you know, is there... Is there a um, place for a challenge to my ideas of what we think we should do? And of course. I mean, the Bible says a wife is given to a husband as a helper. 
And what kind of, you know, she's a counselor. You know, we're counselors to each other trying to figure out and what kind of counselor would never challenge or never, you know, come up with an opposing, uh, opposing idea. But the, I think the place for the wife is to start with the posture of the heart. What posture of the heart am I bringing to this conversation so that when it's time to oppose, it's I'm opposing in love. I'm imposing because I do believe in you and I do want to be behind you. It's, uh, it's not for me, it's for us, it's for our family. Okay, so that's the posture. Third objection from a wife could be, what about my calling as a woman? Shouldn't he believe in and me and follow me and my calling just as much as I should follow him in his calling? That's a good question. And I would say the first answer to that is, of course, absolutely. I think any loving husband is going to see the gifts in his wife and say, I want you to use those for God's kingdom. And I want, you to, I want people to know you and to be blessed by those gifts, whatever opportunity they can. And I want to encourage you. And I want you to know when that time comes that guess what? Yes, I am going to be behind you. But, um, of course, there are a lot of decisions that need to be made in the family. And sometimes the callings of a husband or wife are at odds with each other. And which one is going to take first precedence? And, you know, I asked Shannon about this one as well. And one thought that she had said was that for many women, they long for their husbands to be leaders in their families, to take responsibility, to take ownership, to be dependable, to have, you know, to be principled and say, this is what I believe in. I'm going to lead my family in those principles. And she's saying that if you want your husband to be a leader, this is a place to encourage him is in the place of his vocation and where he's going to work and say, I'm going to be behind you. I'm going to follow you. And he's going to probably have to find his way. It's not going to be a straight path. You know, I had 10 years of college. There's probably some wasted time in there. And, you know, you're going to have to live with some of that. And that's okay. It's okay. And I think there is a biblical precedent for that in the Bible when the Bible calls a wife a helper which tells us that men and women have been made by God differently. And this fact that men and women have been made by God differently has actually been confirmed over and over again, even recently by psychological studies. Um, Kathy Keller, in her portion of the book, The Meaning of Marriage, talks about a a Harvard-published study by Carol Gilligan called In a Different Voice, where Gilligan talks about how um, the different processes of maturing for men and women. And she says that men feel like they are maturing or moving forward in their life when they go out into the world and do something and accomplish something. That's the first thing they think about. And as they assess their own lives, they're saying, what am I doing with my life? Whereas a woman will tend to say, you know, I'm maturing my life based on the relationships that I'm forming. And so a man evaluates his life based on what he's doing, and a woman evaluates her life on, on the relationships in her life. Now, does that mean that men don't care about relationships and women don't care about going out and doing something? Of course not. It's just that their first instinct, the first thing that kind of defines their identity is formed in this way. Um, And so I think that one of the things the Bible is calling us to do is to recognize those differences and to respect them. Now, you might say, well, what if a wife has a job and the husband doesn't? Are you saying there's no way that a man should stay home and care for the children? I'm not saying that. 
I understand, of course, a, a couple needs to figure out how to provide for their family. And you've got to find out ways to do it. You've got to find creative ways and what opportunities they are. And there is absolutely no shame if a husband is going to say, at a time, you know, there's a season where I'm going to have to be home with the kids and my wife's going to have to work. The question, though, that's a different question about how we're going to make it. A different question from the question of what, um, let me see how I said it, what philosophy of marriage and family is informing our decision making? What is the ideal for us? And I think it's important that a husband and wife come to terms with what is the philosophy that the Bible puts forth, and at least this is what we're going to strive for. This is what we're going to hope for, is what God has set up for us. And if the question comes to, down to whose job will get us a bigger house to live in, I think the Bible warns us that reversing the roles may have a greater cost than our culture recognizes. Okay, so I think that's a warning for us from the Bible. Okay, so our first point we see in this passage is that a wife follows her husband into her calling that requires risk, requires understanding the gospel. That's complicated. If you think point one was complicated, point two is more complicated. <laughs> and this is point two, is that a wife subverts her husband in his foolishness. What do I mean by that? Well, as I mentioned, this is probably one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible is in this passage. And there are a number of interpretive questions about it. I'm going to try to do the best I can to explain it. So look at with me at verse 24. This is what it says. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, one of the questions is, who's the him that the Lord is going to put to death? That's the big question for everyone. It's probably Moses. Moses was on the way, and the Lord is going to kill him, which is a very strange thing to say, because God has just called Moses to go and rescue Israel out of slavery, and he's got this whole plan. He's spent the whole, like, you know, few chapters talking about how God's been preparing him for this calling. And then now, all of a sudden, the Lord is going to kill him. Um, what is going on? Well, actually, the phrase... To put him to death is a judicial phrase, which means that Moses has broken some law. What law has Moses broken? Well, I think verse 25 tells us, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So Moses' wife circumcises their son Gershom, and then she takes a piece of the flesh and puts it on someone's feet. Again, that, your translation there, the ESV translates is Moses, but we actually don't know. It puts it at his feet. We, it could be Moses. It could be Gershom's feet, who was just circumcised. Or it could be the angel of the Lord who confronted Moses on the way and who's going to kill him. And so she puts it at, at their feet. And uh, this is a very strange verse, but what we can see at the very least is that Moses has neglected the spiritual care for his family. He's not circumcised his son. And circumcision, you know, the Lord can kind of put up with a lot of Moses whining about, like, I'm not good enough to go and, you know, serve you in Egypt. And that's been happening. We looked at that last week. The Lord can put up with that. But not circumcising your son, the sign of the covenant, the sign that I'm your God and I'm the God to you and to your children, you did not put that on your son, is a very serious thing in the Bible. It's going to be serious in, later in the book of Exodus, during the Passover, it's going to be uh, later in, uh, in the story of God's people as they go into the promised land. Uh, 
And so Zipporah is put in a difficult situation. Zipporah is a Midianite. She didn't grow up with Israelite learning about the covenant. And yet she's learned somehow the importance of circumcision in sealing the family's relationship to the Lord. And so she's watching her husband neglecting the spiritual care of their family. And now he's going to get himself killed. And so she doesn't go and ask Moses, well, what should we do about this? She acts. She takes the son and circumcises him herself. And then she says this strange ceremonial expression, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now what's so amazing about this passage is she saves her husband's life. Look at that, verse 26. So he let him go. The Lord let him go. The Lord didn't kill him. She's his hero in this passage. And I think all wives will at times find themselves in this situation. They say, I'm not the head of this household, but my husband is being a fool. He's blind to it. It is dishonoring to the Lord. It is hurting our family. He is not taking spiritual care of our family. And I don't want to try to control him or tell him what to do, but I do need to act. His authority needs to be both respected and challenged or even possibly undermined at times. That situation is what I mean by the art of being a wife. And this happens on a big scale. It happens on a small scale. And I think one of the best ways to understand this relationship is that the relationship of a wife to a husband is, can be similar to the relationship of, of the church to the world. And actually that parallel is made in other parts of the Bible because the church is called to submit to the governing authorities that they're put under. The world has all these rulers and you know, presidents and laws and we're called to submit to those laws. And yet at the same time, the church is subverting the kingdoms of this world, the kings of this world that become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so we are transforming the world through our love. And so one example of this is in 1 Peter. There's a passage in 1 Peter where it talks about a woman who's either married to someone, she's a Christian and he's not a Christian, or he doesn't obey what God says. So she's in a very difficult situation in her marriage. And this is what Peter says, likewise, like, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that word conduct is used earlier about the church as a whole in our relationship to the world. In, in chapter 2 in 1 Peter, Peter says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so the same way that the church subverts, challenges, transforms the world through love, a wife is called to subvert her husband through love. Through love. Or another way to say it, this is how Jesus says it, the church is called to be wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, our flesh desires to subvert any authority that's over us for ourselves. 
And that's usually why we subvert authority or resist authority is to serve ourselves. It's not from a posture of love. And so the question is, how am I supposed to submit to my husband and resist him at the same time? How is that possible? I think Zipporah gives us a great example in three ways that subversion happens in love. Okay? First way is this. She prays. Okay? In many ways, that's what Zipporah is doing for Moses here, is she's interceding for him. He's acting like a fool, and it's destructive to his life, and she goes before the Lord and pleads for the Lord on, on his behalf. And because of her obedience, Moses is saved. And of course, Zipporah is much like the Lord Jesus in that way. The Lord Jesus is, obeys the Lord for us, and then we are saved. And, um, and I think that prayer is subversive because you are going to an authority that is higher than your husband. There is a place to go to. And I think that probably the art of being a wife, a major part of the art of being a wife, is the art of praying. Learning to pray. And dealing with husbands who are, can be both um, loving and honorable and respectable and that can often be foolish as well is through a posture of prayer. So we see that with Zipporah. She prays. Second... She obeys the Lord. And one of the things that I love about this passage, some commentators have said that that phrase about, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. It's kind of a strange phrase. And it could be that because she, she was a Midianite, you know, she didn't grow up learning the Bible. She doesn't know necessarily the right things to say. But she loves the Lord. She wants to follow him. And this is the best thing that she knew how to say. And so she says to the Lord, okay, I know the circumcision is important. I know the circumcision is what seals our relationship to the Lord. And so I'm going to obey him and I'm going to follow him. And I'll tell you, that is one of the most subversive things, first of all, that the church does in the world, Right? is when the church says we obey the, the Lord above all earthly authorities. We obey him first. That is subversive, right? Actually, you know, uh, the Christians that were living in Germany uh, under the Nazis, they were faced with this question, how do we submit to governing authorities or whether we resist them? And they say, well, Jesus Christ is Lord. We submit to him first. And I think that's an important thing for a wife to have a posture of saying, my first loyalty is to do what the Lord commands of me. So if a wife, for example, maybe has a husband who doesn't care about the church or about the gospel or about the Bible or about the spiritual life, for as a wife to say, I don't want to be critical of you, I want to be respectful of you, I want to get behind you and follow you, but my first loyalty is to the Lord. If you're not going to go to church, I'm going to go to church. If you're not going to be in a home group, I'm going to be in a home group. I need to be among God's people and to be with them. I'm going to obey him first. And in the midst of that, I believe that by obeying him, he's going to help me to love you even more. And to realize that that is an act of subversion to obey the Lord. Third way, she prays, she obeys the Lord. The third way is that she believes the gospel. And I think, you know, even though she comes up with this weird phrase, bridegroom of blood, any Christian reading this, you know, thousands of years later is going to, the first thing that's going to come to mind is we're going to say, bridegroom of blood, what is that? That's weird. It's strange. It's kind of a shadowy, cryptic saying. But Jesus came as the bridegroom, and he died on the cross 
and shed his blood. And actually, we found, find out later that Jesus' death on the cross was our circumcision. He, his, his death on the cross was the thing that sealed our relationship with the Lord. And somehow Zipporah, way back here, on her way to Egypt, understands the gospel and understands the grace. And she's, in her own way, trying to plead that before the Lord. And, you know, I think this speaks to, you know, one of the things that Shannon mentioned about this whole topic of one of the fears of being a wife, and especially you have a flawed husband, and being called to respect and to follow and submit to a flawed husband, is what is he going to do with my respect? Let's say I do respect him. Let's say I do get behind him. I, there's a fear that he might just take that and use that to do whatever he wants. And he's going to take advantage of that. And so shouldn't I be protecting myself that he might take advantage of that? Well, the gospel says that God, that Jesus has forgiven all of our sins. All of us are going to take advantage of that. You are going to sin against Jesus because you know that he'll just forgive you. And yet Jesus has taken that risk with us. And he says, I know that the only way you are transformed is through this grace. You're only transformed through love. And so the deepest thing that Zipporah has and that for a wife to understand is how the Lord interacts with you, that he loves you, that you're going to fail him in this task of loving your husband, and yet he, his blood covers your sins, gives you hope for the future, is sufficient for you, he gives you his spirit, he's with you, he walks with you. And one of the major things that the Bible does is an incredible dignifying of women. Actually, 1 Peter, you know that, that uh, passage about, that I mentioned from 1 Peter? If you go back and read that, read chapter 2, and you'll see there's this whole description of Jesus and all that he's done in the cross. And the, ne the very next words that come out, it says, likewise, wives. And there's this whole paragraph about how women, wives, are like Christ. They are a picture of the gospel. And there's only a little bit about the men. <laughs> and it's, it's a profound honoring that the Bible has of this task of being a wife. And when you know the gospel, when you know the Lord's love for you, it is in Christ that you have the courage to follow your husband into the risk of his calling. You will also have the wisdom to subvert his foolishness with the grace of the gospel. I'll just tell you, all of this that I'm telling you, the world will never tell you. This is something radically different than anything the, the world has to say. Because, but this is the essence of God's kingdom. And, the, and through the gospel, he makes marriage one of the most beautiful pictures of who Jesus is anywhere in the world. And that's what the Lord wants to give you through his word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, I know that uh, these are complex words when I'm speaking to my sisters here. Um, I pray that you would give grace and wisdom to them as they think about and engage and wrestle through the complex calling of being a wife. We thank you for the many women, wives in this church who have responded to you saying, I want 
to love my family. I want to love my husband. And so we pray that you would uh, give us wisdom, teach us to challenge one another, to press one another on to love and good deeds, shape our minds by the gospel. And uh, so uh, we present ourselves to you as your servants in Jesus' name.